Welcome to the Arcade Attack Podcast. It's Adrian here, and today I'm delighted to introduce my chat with David Cranach, one of our favorite retro gaming authors. He talks about his amazing new book, Arcade Perfect, the great story of you know getting those classic arcade games like Mortal Kombat, uh, Pong, Space Invaders into our hands at home. So guys, a really great chat, some brilliant, brilliant stories. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome to Arcade Attack. Retro Gaming Podcast for up to four players. So David, uh, we've had you before on the RKSAP podcast about a year ago actually, and I think you're you got the grand honour of being the second ever, or the first ever person to have to be on the podcast twice. So it's brilliant to have you back, David. Thanks, thank you for your time today. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm glad to be a, a founding member of the Reruns Club. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, last time we had you on, you were talking about stay a while and listen. Um, I mean, I'm really interested in yeah, anything to do with uh, you know Blizzard and, and stuff like that. So how how did that go and all that? How's that book been? Um, Stay Well and Listen 2 is going very well. Uh, by the time you your listeners hear this, uh, it should be about a month and a half away from release, actually. So I've got a number of, of releases on my calendar this oh, year. Oh, excellent. Yes. Excellent. Um, the main reason we've got you on today, though, is to talk about your upcoming book. Um, I, I honestly can't wait. So um, we'll talk a lot about Arcade Perfect in a minute. But, uh, I mean, that's that's coming out quite soon, isn't it, as well, right? Yes, uh, Friday, September 13th, which um, I, I plan because that's the 26th anniversary of Mortal Monday, Mortal Kombat 1 on home systems, which of course is is one of the most important arcade to home ports of all time. Oh, definitely. We can talk about Mortal Kombat later, 100%. But David, mm-hmm. look, really, really appreciate you. See, I mean, I've, I've read the book. You sent it through to me uh, about a month or so ago. I'm really impressed. So I, I really recommend it to our listeners. Give it a try. So, you know... we that's all i can say really it's definitely worth checking out um before we talk about the book though can we, let's let's get back to the arcades let's, can you recall or is there any favorite memories of you growing up playing in the arcades for example yeah um the arcade was kind of my my second living room i guess uh i i probably probably discovered arcade games before i discovered console or computer games because i i grew up i was born in 82 and didn't really start becoming aware enough of my surroundings yeah. to care to care about things like video games until I was uh, probably six or seven. And no one in my family really played them. You know, this is still a big thing. This was still during the time when, like, it was a big deal to be the the kid on the block with a, an Atari twenty six hundred or even an NES. And so I remember um, every time we'd go to the mall, my mom would go do her shopping. And I, I was just old enough for her to feel comfortable leaving me at the arcade because there were always managers there, you know, keeping an eye on kids. And 
I I loved playing beat 'em ups. I played everything from from Final Fight to to Golden Axe to uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the first one, which is still my favorite arcade oh, game great. of all time. Yeah, yeah, I love love arcades. And then I got, I guess, uh, as a natural extension of beat 'em ups, was fighting games. From those, I went into uh, heavily into Street Fighter Two and, and the Mortal Kombat franchise, especially. I was actually known in high school as Mortal. Uh, not oh, really? just by not just by students. Teachers would call from the from the front of the classroom like Mortal, pass your homework up. You got it. I'm like, oh man, it's really getting around. That I love this this game. So, who who's your who are your go to uh, fighters in Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat? If you don't mind me asking, who's who's your favorite characters? Street Fighter. Uh, I, I'm glad to say I have graduated from just defaulting to Ken and Ryu, like, <laughs> like, yeah. like so many people do. I'm pretty good with Ken. I prefer him for a number of technical reasons, but uh, Guile is my guy, especially in the Street Fighter 2 line. I, I love him. I think he's one of the most um, technically complex characters and thus one of the most satisfying to play. In Mortal Kombat, though, as of Mortal Kombat 2 and on, I was so good adrian that i could play random select and win with anyone it landed on are you talking about uh, the first the first mortal kombat well the first mortal kombat i would say was probably sub-zero or scorpion although oh, i really right, like yeah, yeah. two but i think random select was added in mortal kombat 2 so once that feature became a thing nice. my goal was always to you know i was a kid i was just in in high school and college i had obviously I had nothing else going on so my goal was to get good enough with every character to just trounce anybody who who played against me in fact I almost got beat up once because my friend talked me into hustling in Mortal Kombat 4, and the guy who lost was not happy. But um, <laughs> fortunately, we talked him down. I turned to my friend. I was like, we're never doing that again. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> you survived to tell the story. <laughs> I survived to tell the story. I think I beat him with, like, Fujin or Kai. So that probably just added salt to the wound because they weren't very good. <laughs> oh, I love that. I mean... Uh... We love the arcades. All the members of Arcade Attack, uh, we are huge. We still remember going to the arcades so fondly. It was such a great time, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's to me the only gaming experience that comes close is a land party. Like playing online is obviously more convenient. If you and I are friends, there's an ocean between us. We can still get online and play games. But there's nothing like being right next to someone, just being in the same room as someone, and and making that game a social experience. 100%, 100%. Well, look, it sounds like you're the perfect man for the book you write because Arcade Perfect, um, I love it. I think it's it's basically, like like you said in the title, really, of uh, it's an amazing celebration of the arcade era and getting those arcades into the homes. Um, quite an interesting angle, actually, to take. What, and actually, in your book, if you don't mind me saying, you said, I think in this little introduction to the book, you said you've wanted to write this book since you were nine. I mean, can yeah. you elaborate a bit more? What, what, why did you want to write this book, and uh, how did it all happen, really? So one thing I, I like to do is when I want to write about ground that has been well-trodden, such as Mortal Kombat and Pac-Man and other coin-op games, I always like to look for angles that that few people have have taken. And that's kind of hard to do, not only because the internet is ubiquitous and anybody can make a YouTube channel or a blog or an Instagram about classic games, but because I tend to write about games that are at least 10 years old, usually older, Mm. um, a lot of people have already covered that territory. So, you know, I... For years, I've actually wanted to write uh, a column about arcade ports because I I, I know that some people do cover them, but um, there are two things. One, 
I don't think anyone has really covered them from from a narrative angle. Most people mm. our age, you know, I'm in my, my mid-30s, uh, most people write about their experiences with the games. And that's fun, yeah. but after you go through, you know, retelling your experiences, you're just kind of regurgitating Wikipedia. What I like to do is I like to write in a narrative style so that you feel like you're right there next to the developers who are making these games. And and because, you know, people have written a lot about the making of Street Fighter 2, the making of Mortal Kombat, the making of Pac-Man, I thought, well, rather than retell these stories, um, I I want to focus on the home ports. And that's mm. kind of item number two, which I, I guess I covered a bit, but I wanted to tell the story of the fact that, you know, almost every port I cover in the book... Uh, it was a high-profile game, you know, Mortal Kombat, NBA Jam, Street Fighter, etc. And yet, most publishers just w- would give these games to to green programmers, people fresh out of college or almost off the street in some cases who had no programming experiences, and yet they are saddled with, hey, guess what? You're making Pac-Man. We expect to sell 12 million units. Have fun. This better be great. But a lot of times they didn't even care that it was great. They just, they knew that people would buy the kind of the proverbial crap in a bag. If it says Pac-Man, people will buy mm. it. So I got, I wanted to dig into those stories because, you know, one of the things that fascinated me as a kid was, you know, I, I played Ninja Turtles at home on NES. It was uh, TMNT2, the arcade game, but it was yep. quite different from the arcade in a lot of ways. And I wanted to know why. And that's kind of the purpose of this book, to find out not only how these ports were made and the pressure people were under to, to deliver, but why, in many cases, they were so different from their source material. That's brilliant. Um, yeah, I mean... I think it is a really interesting angle. I mean, there's so much information about arcades, but you're looking at it from the port aspect, and that's not any, that's a completely whole different sort of venture, isn't it? In a way, yeah, brilliant. It, it really is because you know, like, again, like everybody knows how how Ed Boon and, and John Tobias and and two other people. It's crazy to think that Mortal Kombat One was made by four people, but <laughs> you know, we know the story of how they did that. But what was it like? What was it like to be inside sculptured software, knowing that your Super NES version was essentially neutered because Nintendo said absolutely no blood? And what was it like to be at Probe, knowing that, hey, we do have blood, but gee, our controller only has three buttons. You know, there are all sorts of interesting angles. And that kind of goes back to what I do. I not only like to write narratives, but a lot of people, you know, I mentioned they just kind of regurgitate Wikipedia. No, No offense to them, but, you know, the information is so prolific that you don't have to put a new spin on it. So what I like to do is I like to go to the horse's mouth. I want to talk to the developers to find mm. out directly from them rather than just saying, I hear the controls and hear the graphics, you know? What I like about your book is it's 16 games, I believe, isn't it? You look at 16 classic mm-hmm. games. And I think after each game, or most of them at least, is really interesting and in-depth interviews, like I said, with the people involved. And that that must have taken a lot of planning, a lot of research. And it's it's not, you know, you're actually getting it from the horse's mouth, like you said. Well done. So this is something I'm a bit proud of. If if I can pat myself in the back Uh, um, from the initial idea to, to to write a book that is to the first revision, uh, two and a half months. Yeah. And that was just, I think it's over, 800 pages and I'm, I'm pretty proud of how it turned out you know it's been revised since then but it was just it, it's not me bragging it's really just like i was that's how passionate i was i could not i could not eat i could not sleep i all i could think about was i want to keep writing this book i was i was doing like eight thousand words a day for a couple of weeks there it was just Crazy. i was having so much fun doing it 
Ah, good stuff. Good stuff. Um, I was wondering, actually, do you think there's a particular generation or even title that you feel saw the, the true handing over of the baton where arcade perfect games could be enjoyed at home? A lot of people say maybe the Dreamcast, but w- what's your view? You know, I think, I think there are two answers. The first, my first answer is either PlayStation or Dreamcast because the PlayStation was interesting in that you had games like Soul Calibur and um, uh, San Francisco Rush 2049, both of which were not only arcade perfect, but actually went beyond arcade perfect, right? The the graphics were better, the animations were better, the frame rates were higher, uh, there were more gameplay modes, especially in Soul Calibur. Um, But really, like PlayStation, if you look at a game like Street Fighter Alpha, other than slightly longer loading times because of the slow CD-ROM drive speed, that that game was arcade perfect. It, mm. it didn't really go too far beyond the arcade. But my second answer would be um, the NES. And that might surprise a lot of people, mm. but this that was an era where a lot of the developers I talked to said, you know what, we there's no way that we can match our audio visuals to the arcades because the NES hardware is inferior. So instead of trying to recreate exactly what you see in here, we're going to go a bit beyond the arcade game ourselves. Like, mm. like Ninja Turtles 2 on NES, yes, it was the arcade game, but the levels were twice as long. There were new levels. There were new bosses. There were new cutscenes. So it, it almost felt like even if you played that game exhaustively in the arcade, you still had a reason to invest in it at home. Brilliant. No, I think that's a great answer. Um, what do you think, though? It's a slightly different question, but it's got a similar sort of edge to it. Which port of any arcade classic do you think is the biggest and most important achievement? In the past, I've spoken to Todd Fry, and he, was, he, he spoke to me about Pac-Man. Um, I don't think that would be up there personally, but what, have you got an opinion <laughs> on, that, on that question? Pac-Man was certainly uh, a system seller, but I think if, yeah. if you want to know the first, the most important, it was it was Space Invaders for the Atari, bar none. Um, that was a game also that, you know, it wasn't exactly arcade perfect. There were fewer aliens on screen, but, you know, Richard Maurer, he added different, he added different modes. It was also, it was also the first time that, again, even though it wasn't one-to-one, it was the first time consumers could actually stick a cartridge into their home video game system and say, you know what? this is pretty darn close to what I've spent so many quarters on in the arcades. I think that was a really, really big deal. Um, another one a little later, I think was mortal Kombat, um, purely oh, for, for, for advertising, you know, remember that in, in September 90, 1993 video game release dates were still a, a big thing. Uh, the first one that have a, a huge marketing push behind it was Sonic two the year mm-hmm. before for Sonic Tuesday. But, uh, you know, acclaim pumped, 10 million dollars into into mortal monday september 13th 1993 i remember you know i was already i loved the game in the arcades but i everywhere i turned the back of my batman comic books tv commercials billboards it seemed like mortal Kombat was everywhere and that was like really the first time it felt like a video game was being promoted like a movie yeah yeah yeah. no brilliant yeah like, yeah good answer um Okay, perfect. Let's get back to your book a bit. That's right, David. You you split it up in chronological order. If, if, if correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. Starting from the classic, I think it starts in Pong, and it leads up to San Francisco, uh, 2049. Um, what can you explain to our listeners? What you're trying to achieve in each chapter, and 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 I'd love to know how you got that 16 game list. I'm assuming <laughs> there was a big list at the start, and you had to cut some off. So what can our what can our listeners expect in each sort of chapter, and how do you choose those 16 games? 
Sure. So another um, hallmark of, of my writing that's emerged over the past 15 years that I've been doing this is um, I, I love technology and video games, but really I consider those just a stage. What's important to me are the actors on that stage, the people um, who create these games and how their personalities and the culture of their backgrounds and their workplaces influence the production of games. So um, with each chapter, you know, some, chapter, some chapters are more technical. But usually each chapter, I try to create um, personal stakes. You know, there's a, there's a programmer I talked to named Pete Andrew, who, um, as a kid, he had a teacher literally laugh in his face when he said, I want to make video games. The teacher said, that's not a real job. Be serious. And Pete Andrew set out to kind of prove this guy wrong. And the interesting thing is, you know, he, his big project that I talked to him about was Double Dragon on the Sega Genesis, which... Um, was a great port in some ways, fell short in others, but the most important part of it was that the game did well enough and and Pete gained the respect and trust of his managers to keep climbing his career ladder. You know, he's been a director mm. and a senior producer at studios for years now. So, you know, he said it was such a thrill to me to to not only work on a high-profile game, but to ship it. That told me I can do it, that this is a real job, that I've made it, and then I can keep growing from here. So that's really kind of what to expect from each chapter. You know, some some will be more technical, but by and large, I like to introduce you to people so that you can kind of learn why they, they made a port of a classic game the way they did and kind of more about their culture. Um, as far as the 16 games... Uh, a criteria for everything I write is that I have to talk to at least one developer, mm. uh, preferably two, so that at least I can cross-reference people's memories. Because, you know, this all happened so long ago that people mm. don't remember things exactly. Um, and so there were some games I wanted to write about, uh, several Neo Geo games, but either I couldn't track anybody down or, you know, the developers were Japanese. And unfortunately, I neither speak Japanese nor have easy access to a translator. So that's yep. that's, a, that's a bar I'm hoping to hop for the sequel. Because I, I, I write sequels a lot, too. You know, we were talking about Stay Well and Listen, too. And I definitely have plans for, uh, if not an expanded version of Arcade Perfect sometime in the future, then a, then a volume two. Um, but also, I just, I kind of wanted to... What I like to do is I kind of established, I set my goalposts. We start with the, you know, home Atari, home, home Pong, and to go to the Dreamcast. But then I could also, I have room to go back in there. And kind of like I mentioned, the Neo Geo, which is very important to arcade games, since the hardware bet between arcade and console was the same thing, I can go back and fill in blanks later if I want to. Enjoying the show? Why not check out some other great retro gaming podcasts? like Retro Asylum, The Retro Hour, RGDS, Maximum Power Up, Arcade Perfect, and The Ten Pence Arcade. Brilliant. Well, I'd love to know, actually, I think I know the answer already, actually, truthfully, but out of all the 16 <laughs> games you featured, have you got a personal favourite and maybe you can explain why? Uh, <laughs> uh, I didn't even make any of these games, but I feel like I think I feel like I'm choosing between my favorite nephews and nieces, yeah. I guess. <laughs> um, it's kind of a three way tie between Mortal Kombat 1, Street Fighter 2 and Ninja Turtles. Ninja Turtles, again, still my favorite coin op game right. of all time. I had so much fun not only playing that alone on my NES, but the four players in the arcades was such a blast. Um Street Fighter 2, I think it mechanically, Street Fighter has always been superior to Mortal Kombat. I mean, mm. uh, you know, that's a little different with the last three games. Mortal Kombat's definitely kind of a pro-level game now. 
Um, but Street Fighter Two was just so colorful, um, so fluid. I, I felt like like the first time I saw that game. You know, there's a line, of course. So I was I was standing on my tippy toes trying to look at the screen. I just I felt like I was watching an animated movie. I'd never seen a video game yeah. look and move like that. And you know, Street Fighter Two resurrected arcades, which were kind of on the brink of extinction then. And then Mortal Kombat was just out of the deluge of Street Fighter II clones that followed, Mortal Kombat distinguished itself. It was shallow in some ways, but that same level of shallowness, such as all the all the characters having the exact same basic moves, uh, made it more accessible, and that made it fun to pick up and play. But it was also it was also a water cooler game. But the water cooler in this case was an arcade cabinet. Like if you walked into an arcade and saw a crowd near Mortal Kombat, you would always slow down because you might get to see a fatality. And you know this oh, was yeah. the days before the internet so when that screen went dark and you saw kano rip out a beating heart for the first time it was like what did i just see like yeah. and, you know and it was secret you couldn't just press a button to do that you had to know the code and and passing those around that was actually my first writing job uh when was I was in, yeah, yeah yeah kind yeah. of so when i was in sixth grade my mom bought me the mortal kombat strategy guide and i had everyone coming up to me like let me borrow your guide and i'm like for close friends yes otherwise i don't know you go away but <laughs> What I did was I, I, I had an idea one day. I went into our Mac lab. I typed out all the special moves and fatalities, uh, cheat codes like for the Sega Genesis. I printed off like 50 copies, and I sold them all for a quarter each. Nice. So that I, was my foray into published writing right there. <laughs> have you still got a copy of that somewhere, or is that long gone? I don't have it, but I did that for Mortal Kombat 2 as well. And last Christmas, my friend was home digging through his attic, and he pulled out a copy... <laughs> Oh, nice. <laughs> of, of the one I sold to him. He was like, obviously, friendship didn't mean I got it for free. I'm like, no, man, I'm trying to run a business here. But uh, yeah, and he gave it to me. So I even have his handwritten notes on it. And I, I even made a key like F for forward because, you know, it depends on you don't want to yeah, yeah. get to left or right because then people get confused. I've always I've always liked strategy guides. And so it was kind of fun to write my own simple, although it was at the time. Oh, brilliant. I mean, just talking about Mortal Kombat, I know that you've you've had John Tobias, you spoke to him in your book. I mean, you've got some great interviews in your book. It's absolutely stunning. Um, can you, do you mind sharing with our listeners some of the key people you managed to track down and maybe the, the people that you're most excited and you, you thought you could never really get to, but you did, and, and, and uh, how do they help bring life to your book? Oh, sure. Um, that was, I, I always love getting to talk to developers who have had an impact on my life because games, you know, so many of us, I think you can agree with this, probably your listeners as well. Games have had an impact on our lives. Uh, um, so it was, it was a real pleasure getting to talk to John Tobias. Uh, I actually, I went to E3. I was covering it for Shack news where I write as a, as a features editor. And uh, I bumped into Ed Boone, got to chat with him for a little while, but nothing on the record. Cause you know, Warner brothers is always kind of <laughs> hovering. Yeah. Um, uh, as far as who I want to talk to, some of my favorite interviews were uh, Al Alcorn. You know, he had so many stories, not just about Tong or Pong, but about the old days of Atari. Uh, Todd Fry for Pac-Man. Gary Kitchen, pa- yeah. <laughs> Donkey Kong on the 2600. Quite a raconteur. His stories are, are great. Um, also, uh, Scott uh, Backrack. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. I just realized I've never had occasion to say it out loud. But uh, the... The CEO of Tastemakers, which is, is which runs the arcade One Up brand, is such a nice guy. Uh, completely open to interviews. He's sending me a few arcade cabinets just because I actually don't wow. have any. And he said, "Yeah, the first one he said he's like, I'm going to send you a Ninja Turtles cabinet." I'm like, "Well, little kid David is on the moon right now because he always <laughs> wanted one of those in his bedroom." Um, yeah, and, and, but also like you know, 
Pete Andrew is a guy most people probably haven't heard of because he's, you know, he's not a John Romero or Shigeru Miyamoto. You know, he doesn't have his name plastered all over magazines, but he had such an interesting story about working so hard to get into the games business and port Double Dragon to the Genesis that he was as much uh, of a pleasure to speak with as, you know, a John Tobias or a, a Todd Fry. Oh, brilliant. I mean, it is the interviews are brilliant. And I love it because usually I'm sure they're used to answering questions not about their ports necessarily, but there are other games and so forth, you know. So I, I'm sure they enjoy talking about that side of things. So, yeah, good job. Yeah, they, I, no, thanks. I appreciate that. It was, um, it's really fun because one of the, the, almost to a person when we done, when we finished, people said, you know, that was a really great interview. You asked questions that I haven't been asked. And I, I pride myself on trying to do that because, you know, Al Alcorn has been talking about Pong for, you know, going on <laughs> over 40 years, I think. So <laughs> you'd be surprised that, you know, if you can come up with a question he hasn't asked yet, then that's that's kind of cool. But I, I think it's also because, you know, uh, again, I try not to just focus on technical stuff, although there's plenty of that, but I also like to get to know people and more about culture. And mm-hmm. uh, people people really like opening up about that because, you know, for a lot of these people, they're in the trenches making games. They're not really stopping to think about what things were like and what they were wearing and who they were talking to. And so it's for them, it's just fun, usually pleasant uh, stroll down memory lane. It's, it's enjoyable for both parties, I think. No, good on you. Is, it, is there a particular anecdote you got that you can share with our, our listeners from, from any of the interviews that you can share? You know, any little stories <laughs> or, or facts or what the, that really interesting? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I mentioned earlier talking to Gary Kitchen, who brought Donkey Kong to the 2600. Um, so many great stories. Uh, I think one of the best was, um, you know, when he landed the Donkey Kong port, he kind of knew that he could punch his own ticket. He knew that once that went on sale, he could go anywhere. But he wanted to get a head start. He wanted to start looking for a job early so he didn't have a gap. And, uh, you know, he, he courted Activision, and someone from Activision came out to his house and, and looked at the, you know, played his port. And they were impressed, but they also noticed that um, all the the platformers on level one, you know, the construction site, they were straight. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, the Atari, it's really hard. The Atari just wasn't made to do something like create slanted platforms. And the guy said, well, if you worked at Activision, you'd make those platforms slanted. And then he left. And (laughs) Gary Kitchen was like, wow, I not only have to do this for this game, but... He, he knew that the first thing players would notice is, oh, why are the platforms in level one straight instead of broken? Mm. Um, and so it was, uh, I tell that story, but then I kind of get into the, some of the technical um, hoops he had to jump through to, to make that happen. And his, his stories were just a blast. Brilliant. Yeah, no, great stuff. Um, so your Arcade Perfect is over 400 pages long. You're getting a good deal with your money there. It's, it's really insightful. I really enjoyed reading it. What, when is it available, um, David? When, when can our listeners and how can they get a copy? When? Oh, well, sure. Um, yeah. So it'll be it'll be in bookstores and on, on Kindle and Amazon, of course, uh, on Friday, September thirteenth. Um, you can um, kind of follow along. I'm releasing screenshots and little quotes and tidbits from the book leading up to then. Uh, just head over to arcadeperfectbook.com. And there you'll find uh, not only some some early blurbs I've gotten from people who have read the book, such as Tom Kalinske, the former president of Sega, oh. um, but uh, um, links to social accounts where I where I tweet this stuff and post Instagram stories. I have to be honest with you, even though I'm in my mid thirties, I'm a millennial. I, I'm not completely clear on what an Instagram story is, but I'm posting them. I'm posting them. <laughs> 
So I guess that's that's good enough. Yeah. <laughs> no, good stuff. Yes, I hope. Um, oh, I reckon this interview will come up maybe just before the release date, maybe just after. So we'll put we'll put a link on the show notes to the site as well. So arcadeperfectbook.com. Is that right? Yes, David? correct. Excellent. Um, love to talk a bit more about the arcades, actually, because like, like I mentioned earlier, we, we loved the arcades growing up. It, and I agree, Street Fighter 2, Mortal Kombat, we got Sega Rally as well. We, that was our kind of era, personally. You know, we, you know, obviously the Golden Axes and stuff. But how, we, you know, do you feel it's quite sad in a way that, there's, that the arcades are dying out? And, and just, well, when you go to them now, it's all slot machines in the yeah. UK, in the UK at least. I can't speak for the US, but what do you think about the arcades? Is it making you a bit sad that they're kind of dying out? Oh, it, it's it's devastating at the risk of sounding dramatic. I mean, yeah. here's the, here's the thing: gamer culture. <laughs> I don't even really like the word gamer, and I try not to use it professionally because it's taken on such negative connotations. Um, if you look at the sort of harassment that people, especially women, endure on services such as Xbox Live, uh, Steam, and especially communities, it's it's really hard to break into new communities for an established game like a Dota 2 or a League of Legends because those games hinge on, cooper- on cooperation. And you would think that that would make players friendly, but instead, if, if you are the weak link, people can really make you feel bad about yourself for, for dragging them down. That sort of behavior... I won't say never happen at arcades, but it seemed like it would rarely happen because if you talk that way to someone bigger than you, he'll probably break your face. <laughs> um, the, the arcades were just kind of a friendlier place by default because there was no anonymity. You know, everyone could see, you know, you could see the person standing next to you, um, often feel them breathing behind you when they're waiting to, to drop their quarter into the machine because they got next, as people used to say. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sad to, that arcades have dwindled. I have a, an experience similar to yours. I, w- I went to my uh, local arcade, the arcade where I played Ninja Turtles as a kid, and there were a couple of video games there. The rest was ju- were just, I call them ticket games, you know, mm. skee-ball and yeah. uh, the claw games, and it's just, I don't know, that stuff's fun if you're a kid, but it's it's kind of like as convenient as video streaming services like Netflix are, there is always something magical to me about Fridays after school when mom would take us to the video store to pick out a movie for the weekend. Yeah. Brow- browsing, you know, digital catalogs is just not as exciting to me as actually being in a place and, and sharing in that experience. And I feel the same way about arcades. Uh, I have to agree. It, it is sad. I, um, what if you could give one reason? Um, I, know there's, I know there's many, but why do you? What do you think is the main reason why arcades did die out? Do you think it is just the stronger consoles or, or, or what? Yeah, you know, at first, um, consoles and arcades shared in a symbiotic relationship because, sure, you can buy Space Invaders for your twenty six hundred, and it's more convenient and ultimately cheaper to play it at home. But it is better in the arcade, and also like the arcade is where you go. The arcade was where you went to to show off your skills, you know, to set high scores and put your initials on that high score table. But after a while, you know, it became clear that, you know, for consumers, consoles are great because, you know, by the by the era of like the NES and then the Super NES and Genesis with games like Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter 2, the experiences were becoming so much closer to the arcades in terms of audio visuals that Soon we found reason that well we don't really need to go to the arcades. I mean, yeah, Street Fighter Two is better in the in the arcade, but gee, it's perfectly it's more than fine on my Super Nintendo. Um, and I think eventually, you know, consoles consoles 
are kind of like solar panels. You know, they're more expensive up front, but they will pay for themselves over time. Mm. You know, once you buy that console version of the game you loved in arcades, uh, yeah, it's it's thirty, forty, fifty, sixty dollars. But uh, over time, you realize that hey, you don't have to spend quarters on this anymore. And once you have it, you can play it whenever you want for however long you want. And um, it was just kind of inevitable. I mean, look at Midway. You know, after after Mortal Kombat four and a couple of other games like Hydro Thunder. They just said, you know what, uh, no more arcade games because it's just not making us enough money. And they kind of put all their eggs into their home division. Yeah, I love the analogy, actually. That's brilliant about the solar power. Actually, that's brilliant. (laughs) It's very clever. (laughs) Um, I mean, it might be a silly question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Do you think there's any chance of an arcade comeback to come back on this scene? Do you think there's room for it? And maybe if what would you do? to maybe make it work? Is it like virtuality or something? Or do you think that time is long gone? I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that arcades can exist, but you have to find the, the whole, the whole appeal of arcades back in the day, as we say, was that largely you were playing games there that you couldn't play at home. It's kind of like going to movie theaters before yeah. VHS and beta tape sort of thing. You could only, you had to go to the theater. Um, so I, I'll say again, I think you hit the nail on the head. If I were going to open an arcade, it would center on virtual reality because short of the uh, PlayStation VR, which is fine, but also kind of, you know, low end in terms of hardware and visual fidelity are concerned. Um, peripherals like uh, the Oculus Rift and the, the Vive are so expensive. And you also have to make sure your computer uh, is high end enough to run them that the barrier of entry for that is high for most people. Mm. I, I would I would actually venture out of the house and go to an arcade if I could play top-notch VR games on an Oculus or a Rift there. Obviously, there are a lot of concerns, such as hygiene. You have to make sure to keep those headsets clean. <laughs> you don't want to be the source of a, a pink eye outbreak or something. But I think that, you know, stripping away all the variables, something something unique, something that you can't get at home like virtual reality is what it would take to make arcades viable I, I don't know that you'll ever see the boom that we did in the days mm. of like pac-man and street fighter 2 but certainly i think people would would try them out more because you know i, I remember going as uh, as a kid going to carnivals and i saw uh <laughs> there was some vr device running duke nukem 3d and i tried it and really it was just a screen on my face it wasn't virtual reality at all right but now we're, now we're at days where i think people would pay for that experience um you know 25 cents 50 cents even a dollar especially if they can jump in a vr game with their friends i mean imagine laser tag but you know just you in in a mall in some dark room with a visor on your face there's there's something wow. that could be said for that that's a good idea <laughs> that's a really good idea um <laughs> Bit of a crazy question. Uh, I actually quite like Wreck-It Ralph the film. I'm sure you've seen it. <laughs> if yes. you could, if you could live in an arcade game, a little bit like that film for a day, any arcade, um, which arcade would you cabinet would you choose and why? So you're actually in the game. <laughs> I would choose. I'd probably choose Mortal Kombat because you'd see some wild stuff. But would. I would not be in a fight. I'd be one of the spectators like, yeah, get him, because I definitely do not. I would get my heart ripped out. I, don't, I can barely throw a kick. Um, so I think it would be Mortal Kombat. Also also because like that game, I think the appeal of Mortal Kombat 1 and 2, especially were the fantastical stages, especially mm-hmm. you know Mortal Kombat 2 more than 1, you had these wild places like um, a sky palace that was soaring through the air and a mysterious portal and a forest where secret characters were peeking out at you. It was just... As a kid, uh, 
the visuals captured my imagination. And I think one of the reasons, uh, one of the ways Mortal Kombat uh, distinguished itself was, you know, unlike Street Fighter Two, Midway was turning out sequels, and they would actually kind of take time to write lore, not really story, but lore. And it just it made it kind of made me realize that the the game world, these universes, were bigger than what I saw on the screen. But what I saw on the screen. Uh, was definitely appealing enough. So yeah, I, I would say Mortal Kombat. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, are you still a fan of the Mortal Kombat games, or because I, I personally, I kind of stopped playing after Mortal Kombat Four. I think you said it's basically when the arcades stopped. Um, I just found them a little bit too hard. Do you, do you still like the latest games in the series? Or I, I do. But the difference between thirty-seven-year-old David and and fourteen-year-old David is that I'm. I'm writing like 12 hours a day. And you know, the funny thing is, the funny thing is I think like, I love the, the modern Mortal Kombat games, meaning Mortal Kombat nine in 2011 and on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that they are deep and intricate enough to attract, you know, awesome pro players like Sonic Fox, who I think is just awesome. Um, but they're also harder to pick up. And, and that's the thing. One of Mortal Kombat's strengths, especially when compared to Street Fighter, was that anybody could pick it up and, and quickly learn how to play, because every character played the same except for their special moves and how you could kind of string them into, uh, or along with you know basic attacks like punches and uppercuts. So, um, I don't get to play them as often. I think uh, Steam says I played Mortal Kombat for a grand total of like 58 minutes, which is sad, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just too busy, but I still enjoy watching other people play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, excellent. Um, couple of final quick questions. I know you're a busy man. Um, is there any other books or projects you're involved in, you're working on, you can reveal? Is it all top secret? Oh, for sure. Um, so uh, on October 31st, about a month and a half after Arcade Perfect, uh, Stay a While and Listen Book 2 will be available on Kindle. Uh, the paperback version will follow shortly after. And uh, for anyone who backed the project on Kickstarter last summer, uh, they'll be getting both versions a few weeks early. Then, uh, then they'll appear at retail. But um, I know people have been emailing me for it'll be six years <laughs> about uh, about uh, about stay well and listen to. And I've I've published one book, sometimes two, every year since then. But uh, stay well and listen to was such a big project. And stay well and listen one that wasn't my first book, but it was the first one that I poured a lot of effort into and a lot of learning into. And so it took so much time. I was so tired after it that I just, I kind of needed a long break. I wanted some different writing experiences, but um, it's, it's been pretty fun uh, going back into the worlds of Diablo and Starcraft and the two blizzards. And so, yeah, on, on Halloween, you should be able to pick up stay well and listen to on Kindle. And like I said, paperbacks will follow shortly after that. Oh, good stuff. So you got a busy few months ahead, haven't you, David? Good on you. I do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, really appreciate your chats. I've got one, Kind of bit of a crazy question, but you know, mm-hmm. if you could share a drink with any living or dead sort of video game legend, uh, I know you've spoken to a lot already. To be fair, but who would you love to interview, uh, have a drink with, and maybe have a good chat with? Uh, why? I think it would be like so many from my generation. Um, I would say Shigeru Miyamoto, assuming language barrier wasn't an issue. Um, that's one of those people who, like we talked about earlier, he's probably been asked questions a million times, but I would really like to talk to him about how he still views games since the industry has changed so much. And does he still think of, is it still as fulfilling for him to make games that function as toys now as it was back then? And and how has that aspect of it changed for him? He just seems like a very interesting, uh, interesting person. And it would be really fun to pick his brain for an hour. 
Oh, well, I think that's a great answer. I, I agree. I'd love to chat to him myself, truth as well, <laughs> truthfully. Look, David, it's been a real pleasure. Um, like, like, I, like, I, like I said earlier, please check out the book. It's really is. I really enjoyed it actually. So thank you so much for you know, sending me a copy, and um, I wish you all the luck. And hopefully, we'll chat again soon. Yeah, thank you very much. And again, check out uh, arcadeperfectbook.com. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch regarding this week's episode or anything else, you can tweet us at arcadeattackuk, at keithbarlow82, and at arcade underscore adriano. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash arcadeattackuk. Please check out our website at arcadeattack.co.uk for lots of retro gaming goodness, interviews, reviews, features, top 10, etc. And you can also find all our previous podcasts there. Our podcasts are available to stream from the website and are available to download for free from Stitcher, Podbean and iTunes, where you can also leave us a review and a rating, which we would really, really appreciate. So until next time, take care and we'll speak to you soon.